How appropriate that we just sang, In Christ Alone My Hope is Found, as we enter a series on the minor prophets, much will be made of hope and the fact that our hope is finally in Jesus Christ. I thought by way of introduction we would have a little quiz this morning. I promise you, you don't have to give your answers publicly. <laughs> true or false? I'm going to have six true or false questions here. So, true or false? Daniel is the first of the minor prophets. Just keep that to yourself. Keep your answers to yourself. Daniel is the first of the minor prophets. Second question. About half of the material of the minor prophets is given towards what we would call the end times. That is the final return of Christ, judgment, and moving into the final state. About half of the material in the minor prophets is given towards what we would call the end times. Third question. This is special for one of my friends out there. The Old Testament is basically a prologue to the New Testament. True or false? Old Testament is basically a prologue to the New Testament. Next question. True or false? Most of what the minor prophets have to say offers hope to the people of Israel and judgment upon the surrounding nations. True or false? Most of what the minor prophets have to say offers hope to the peace of people of Israel and judgment upon the surrounding nations. Fifth question, true or false? The book of the prophet Hezekiah is central to what happens among the minor prophets. What are you laughing about, Steve? <laughs> and then the last one, and I don't know the answer to this one. True or false, I, the person answering the question, have read through the Minor Prophets in one sitting with great interest. <laughs> you may have guessed, I don't know the answer to the sixth one, but that the answers are all false. Uh, Daniel actually is not one of the minor prophets. Daniel is where we consider the major prophets to be. Uh, very little of the minor prophets actually addresses what we refer to as the end times. The Old Testament is not merely a prologue to the New Testament. Rather, is absolutely foundational to our faith and worth our time and attention. While the Minor Prophets do offer hope to Israel, most of the content of the Minor Prophets is judgment upon Israel, and much hope is offered to the nations, although you certainly have a mix of materials in there. Hezekiah is not a book of the Bible at all, uh, certainly not one of the Minor Prophets, although Hezekiah was a king in Judah at the time that uh, several of the prophets would have been doing their work. And it's not likely that most of us have read through all of the Minor Prophets in one sitting with great interest. Uh, 
unfortunately. I mentioned last week, for most of us, these are probably the cleanest, least thumbed pages of our Bibles, right along with the genealogies at the beginning of Chronicles. Um, uh, they are often little red because, you know, we get through the big prophets and there's these pages that pretty much say the same thing as the big prophets just said, and we really want to get to Jesus. Uh, and so, if we're really committed to our read through the Bible this year, we slog our way through, um, although it can be really difficult to read these books. It really can. They conjure up images for us of bearded prognosticators, kind of along the lines of Nostradamus or somebody like that. Uh, language is confusing. One commentator that I read said, the prophets are too many and too confusing in the blur of their visions to be accepted by a scientific and time-conscious age. And that was G. Campbell Morgan 85 years ago. All the more in our time-conscious and very practical thinking age, Maybe we only give a few minutes to the reading of the scriptures and it's really hard to devote those few minutes to something that can be so very confusing. So why? Why are we studying the minor prophets? We're going to give the next basically 13 weeks uh, to this study of what we believe is very important section of Scripture that can speak to us today. It's not just old stories about old people in a time gone by. And the prophets are not mainly filled with these cosmic visions of things that are too deep to understand. The prophets wrote to address their contemporary situation which was one of political turmoil in the exchanges between leaders of the nation, a situation of moral decay in the countries in which they lived, tumultuous world events as the major powers wrestled against each other and the minor nations were caught vacillating between who might have the greatest control over their individual lives. The minor prophets spoke the heart of God to the people of God who did not recognize in their privileged position how far they had fallen, how very near was their judgment, how very deep was the repentance required of them, and how glorious the hope that lay before them. And so it is our prayer that as we see our times and look at these books, we will see God's heart for his people in our day and age. In understanding why the minor prophets, it is important to understand a bit of the historical context. And it occurred to, I 
excuse me, I think it was Pastor Danny who said, do you really think that most people actually understand where it fits into the larger history? And that was a very astute question. So we're going to give a little bit of time to history so that we can see where these books come into play and what is the role that they play. And it's going to be a big history because we're going to start with Adam. <laughs> Because the history of the scriptures, of course, is rooted in the very first pages of scriptures that are a foundation for everything that follows. In creation, it was God's desire to have a perfect world in which his people could live in harmony with each other and in harmony with him and in harmony with the world around them. That is what God created a perfect world in which people were in harmony with each other, with the world around them, and in which people enjoyed a perfect and close relationship with their holy God, the Creator. But then we know that the first man and woman fell into sin and brought with them the fall of all of creation and disorder, and all of the disharmony that we live in and experience among ourselves, the fractured nature of not only our own hearts, but of the world around us, and the fractured relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father is a result of human sin. But God made a promise. God made a promise right there to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would be the source of victory and of blessing for all of mankind. And really, if you just look at the rest of Scripture, that's the story. It's the story of the descendant of Adam and Eve, the promised seed who would come and bring restoration. Now, for the rest of the Old Testament, if you want a convenient way to be able to remember the major events, it is actually fairly accurate simply to break it down into 500-year periods of time. And so, at 2000 BC, you have Abraham and God speaking to Abraham that it is specifically through Abraham's offspring. It is specifically through the nation that God would create through Abraham that the promised seed and the promised blessing would come. And so, this is the beginning of God's particular people through whom the promises would be fulfilled. With Abraham, we see progress in this course of redemption as God begins to create his special people. Then you can skip forward. This is obviously very broad outline, but following that 500-year pattern, at about 1500 BC, you have Moses. The people, the nation of Israel has grown tremendously. It is located in Egypt, but it is still without a strong national identity because for 500 years they have grown as a people in slavery. And God raises up Moses to lead the people out of slavery in Egypt into the land that had been promised to Abraham 
and God himself is the leader of those people. He establishes a theocracy in which God is the leader, and he also establishes a religious law, the law of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, describe the people of God through whom, again, the promise would come. And so just as a covenant, a promise was made to Adam and Eve, and a covenant or a promise was made to Abraham, a covenant, a promise is made with Moses. If these people will follow me, I will be their God and bless them, and all of the nations will come. And you can fast forward again about 500 years to the year 1000 BC, where you have David, who was the greatest king of Israel. So there's been a change. The people were not satisfied with God as their king. They wanted somebody who they could actually see and admire and follow and who would lead them to victories. And so God gave them David. God gave them Saul and God gave them David as king. And so this is the period of the monarchy. This is the highest period in the history of the people of Israel and promises once again made to David that God would establish an eternal kingdom. And once again, that the seed of David, the one who is following after David, that someone who was coming, who would be the king over all and who would be the king forever. So each one of these promises, every step of the way, are about God developing his people at the same time as looking forward to the promised one who was coming. Then you can skip ahead about another 500 years, and here you have a people that is returning from exile. And we're going to talk more about what happened in between that period of time, but approximately 500 BC, you have the return from exile and the further anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. So that's an overall picture. Now let's narrow that down into the 1,000 to 500 or so period of time so that we can understand what's been happening to lead us from a powerful monarchy to a nation that was in exile and returning from exile. The the roots of disaster actually sprang up during the reign of David as he fell into sin and as his family experienced the consequences of sin. And so when David's son Solomon became king, he inherited a powerful kingdom and he himself was committed in his relationship with the Lord. But Solomon allowed himself to be influenced by the idols, by the false gods of the nations around as he took to himself many wives from those nations and allowed the worship of the gods of those nations to take place in the kingdom. And so the roots of idolatry grew very deep and very firm within the kingdom. And so then the Lord determined that he would actually divide the kingdom, that 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel would become the kingdom of Israel in the north, 
that only two would be left to the house of David. That's the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. And it was Solomon's son, Rehoboam, who produced this split. The kingdom divided in 930 B.C. And Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was king over the house of, of Israel, over Jerusalem. But the northern ten tribes were ruled by a man named Jeroboam. Jeroboam was someone whom Solomon had respected. He was a young man of promise. He was a young man who, who even the Lord identified as someone who would lead. But Rehoboam, Jer Jeroboam was faced with a problem. When he became king over these northern ten tribes, they were still obligated annually at least to travel to Jerusalem to carry on worship. And Jeroboam said to himself, that's not going to work. If the people go to Jerusalem to worship, then they are going to return to the house of David. They're going to turn back to King Rehoboam. They're going to kill me, and I will lose this kingdom. And so Jeroboam consults with some of his wise men, and they make a decision to build two calves. If you know the history of the Old Testament, two calves was a very bad direction in which to go. They, they make two golden calves, and one of those calves is established in Bethel and another far away in Dan. And Jeroboam says, it's too hard for you to go to Jerusalem to worship. Here are your gods, O Israel, who led you out of Egypt. And this became a sin, this idolatry. And the people went to Bethel to worship, and they went as far as Dan to worship the other calf there. And that is the history of Israel from that moment on, one idolatrous king after another. They would walk that path their entire history until finally in 722 B.C., the nation of Assyria invades. The people of Israel had been under pressure from Assyria for decades. This was a hated enemy, but it was in 722 that they finally overwhelmed the capital city of Samaria, absolutely destroyed the land, carried everyone off into captivity. That is who they didn't kill. And that was the end. Israel was never reestablished as a nation. You still have the southern kingdom. In 930, when the, when the kingdom split, Judah had a little bit different of a history, but honestly, it wasn't much better. Judah was plagued by the idolatry that Solomon had introduced throughout its entire history. There were some good kings. There were times of reform. But just to give you an idea of how bad the situation was, one of the greatest reforms that, that happened during this time was under King Josiah. When King Josiah had been king for 10 years, they discovered the law of Moses in the temple. And Josiah read the law for the first time, and he was a
appalled at the recognition of how far they had fallen from the commands of God. Now, the primary job of the king of Judah was to read and to understand the law and to lead the people in following it. The king before Josiah, Manasseh, was one of the most wicked kings. In fact, it was during the rule of Manasseh that God determined that he would wipe out Judah. So surely during his 55 years, there was no knowledge of the law. For at least 65 years, there was no knowledge of the law within the kingdom of Judah. This kingdom that was supposed to be dedicated to living out God's law in everyday life. That's how bad things were. That's how far ignorance had spread, not only among the people, but even among the leaders. And so, although God gave some respite as a result of Josiah's reforms, in the year 586, his judgment on the kingdom of Judah was carried out, this time by the Babylonians who invaded, surrounded Jerusalem, broke down the walls, broke down the temples, killed many, carried off the rest into exile. And for approximately 70 years, the people of Judah lived in exile until they were called back again into the land and back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to repopulate the land. So this is the broad strokes of the history that we are talking about. And the minor prophets fall into about a 350-year period of time right before the destruction of Samaria and the kingdom of Israel until that post-exilic period, about 430 B.C., as they spoke to the kingdom of Israel, as they spoke to the kingdom of Judah, as they spoke to the surrounding nations. And then, many of us are familiar with the 400 years of silence. No prophet at all, no word from the Lord until Jesus Christ would be born. So that's the broad history, and that helps us to understand then that period of time in which the minor prophets carried out their ministry and which we will be studying. It would be also helpful to look at this from a literary perspective, not simply a historical perspective. What is the literary role that the minor prophets play within the larger story? And to consider this, we are actually going to look at the Old Testament as Jesus read it, We're going to look at the structure of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is different than the structure of the Old Testament as we have it. Same books, different order. And it's important because in the order that we read it, I basically describe to you the experience that we have. We read through all of that history, and then we read through the very long prophetic books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then there's this little section kind of tagged onto the end of the Old Testament, which we 
want to hurry through until we can finally get to Jesus and get to the New Testament. But if you look at the structure of Jesus' Old Testament, if you look at the structure of the Hebrew Bible, we see that the prophets play a central role. They're not at the end, they're in the middle. And they provide important commentary before you move on with the rest of the story. You're familiar with the phrase, the law and the prophets, or maybe you've heard the law and the prophets and the writings. That is the basic structure of the Old Testament that Jesus read, the law being Genesis through Deuteronomy. The prophets, very interesting, start with Joshua and, and go through the historical books of uh, ending with first and second kings, and then move on to what we actually know as the prophets. So you might call those former prophets and later prophets. And the former prophets are mostly what we know as historical books. The point being that from Genesis through the former prophets, the early prophets, uh, or the first part of the prophets, you have the history of the rise and the fall of Israel. And then ending right in the middle of those prophets, ending with the historical prophets and moving into the actual prophetic prophets as we know them. Here we're talking about uh, Isaiah and we're talking about Jeremiah and then we're talking about the twelve. The twelve are the minor prophets. Remember, the Old Testament was written on scrolls. You had to unroll the scroll and find your place in the scroll. They didn't have 12 little scrolls with the minor prophets. They were gathered into one scroll. It was known as the 12. And it was right there in the middle of the story. And so you have the rise and the fall of Israel. And then you have the prophets and the first part of the writings as well. Stories like, like Ruth and Job that offer commentary at various periods of time in the history of Israel. You have this central section in which the prophets and in which some of the writings offer commentary on what has taken place and on what is going to take place. And then the last part of the writings picks up with Daniel and runs through history again. And it's the history of a fallen Israel rising again. So get this literary flow. You start out with history describing the rise and then the fall of the people of God. You have this section of commentary including the prophets who are addressing that rise and fall and then predicting the final section, which is another historical section, the fallen nation rising again, being reestablished and then the anticipation we have of Jesus, the promised Messiah who was coming. The only point being that the prophets played an important role throughout the whole story and a central role in the story. I mention throughout the whole story because as early as Deuteronomy, you have four chapters at the end of Deuteronomy, 
in which basically the apostasy, the idolatry, and the exile of the people is already predicted, it's anticipated. And the promise is made that prophets will come who will address the people. So all the way back in the beginning, the prophets have a role. And then through the rest of that history, right up through the end of 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Kings is filled with the work of the prophets, addressing the kings and the people of the nations of Israel and Judah throughout their time. And then, right in the very middle of the Old Testament, you have the prophets who are commenting and addressing what has happened and looking forward to what is going to happen. The prophets play a role in the very middle of the story in which they call out the sin of the people, in which they predict the judgment that is to come, but in which they also see hope and describe hope to a people. And as judgment drew closer and closer, the Lord provided every possible opportunity for the people to hear and respond in repentance. The prophets addressed the political upheaval and moral decay of their day as they describe what it means to be the people of God, how far the people have God of God have fallen, and what awaits them either in judgment or in repentance. And so, let's look for a minute at the message of the Twelve. What do they all have to talk about? What are the main themes that we are going to see over the next 12 weeks? And it's very interesting that if you describe the minor prophets as kind of the middle of the story, the very middle of the minor prophets is, is Micah. And let's read Micah 3.9 through 4.2 as we see the basic message of the minor prophets. If you actually open up that unthumbed section of Scripture and find the very middle you might very well open to Micah 3 and 4. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet, they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble. The temple hill, a mound overcome with thickets. A pronunciation of sin and of judgment and of destruction followed immediately by these words, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. 
It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That is a great summary of the message of the twelve. And we see in there several important parts. The first part is the people's, and in particular, the leader's sin. Throughout the Minor Prophets, we read of the idolatry and of the injustice that is practiced within the nation, of the violence of the people who are supposed to be the people of God's peace or shalom. We read about outward ritualism, thinking we are God's people, thinking that we are doing the, thing that God, the things that God requires, but it's mere outward ritualism inside is spiritual apathy and emptiness. And so the prophets call the people and call the leaders to repentance over and over again a call to repentance. But do you know what is remarkable? How little repentance actually takes place. The strongest example of repentance in all of the minor prophets is Nineveh. Not even the people of God. The hated nation, the enemy, when they come to repentance in the book of Jonah. The first message of the twelve is pointing out sin and calling to repentance and the remarkable hard-heartedness of a people who refuse to reckon, recognize how far they are from the Lord in their own hearts. Second one, second theme is that of the day of the Lord. Sometimes it's called that day. Sometimes it is referred to as the coming day, but it is all referring to an anticipated day uh, of hope, but also of judgment. In fact, most often when we read about that day, we read about a day of judgment. Now, it's important to understand that the day of the Lord is seen in several different stages. And I remember having it described to me years ago. You know how you look through a telescope and distant objects can seem very close to each other because of how far away we are. And so things that might, well, if you're looking through a telescope at the heavens, things that might be light years apart appear right next to each other. Well, the prophecies about the day of the Lord throughout the minor prophets appear in that way. Sometimes they're talking about immediate judgment that's going to happen. Sometimes they're talking about things that would come place in the next few hundred years or even in the time of Christ. And then sometimes they're talking about what we would think of as the end times, as, as the final day of judgment that is coming. So we're, go <clears throat> we're going to have to distinguish among those, but the most significant prophecies about the day of the Lord are actually prophecies of judgment upon the people of Israel and the people of Judah 
because of their failure to repent. And the irony is that they looked forward to the day of the Lord, because that's the day when God's going to judge them and establish us. And we read of woe to those who are looking forward to judgment on other people and not paying attention to what's wrong in their own lives and the judgment that might very well be coming upon them. Day of the Lord is a day of wrath and a day of blessing. Third message, the character of God, and in particular, his faithfulness and his justice. Key verses to understand the character of God throughout the Old Testament are given to Moses in Exodus when he asks to see the glory of the Lord. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And those foundational verses for understanding the character of God are repeated no less than four different times through the, through the minor prophets. As Joel and Jonah addressing very different audiences, as Micah at the very end of his prophecy, followed immediately by Nahum at the very beginning of his prophecy, recount to us the compassion, the love, the readiness to forgive that is central to the character of God, but of course, not neglecting the holiness of God and the inevitability of judgment on those who will not repent and follow him. And so there's much to see about the character of God throughout the minor prophets. And then the sovereignty of God. There are questions in the minor prophets. Why are these things happening? How can these things be taking place? And the prophet's answer always is that God controls all of these events to accomplish his purposes. A great example in what we would refer to as the major prophets are the fact that Assyria, which destroys Samaria and the kingdom of Israel is referred to as the instrument of God's anger. Or that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, who would carry Judah off into exile, is referred to as the Lord's servant. Or Cyrus, who would serve to allow for the return from exile, is called the anointed one of God. These foreign nations and powers that are way out there somewhere doing these things that we might consider to be horrible or wonderful, they are not individual independent actors. God is using them. God has raised them up. God is accomplishing his purposes through them. And remember, his purpose is the sanctification and the redemption of his people. God is in control to accomplish his sanctifying and redeeming purposes for his people. And then the final message is that of hope of return and restoration. 
of the nations coming to Jerusalem for worship. The message of hope is referred to in the restoration of the covenant with David, that one who is coming who would be king over the nations forevermore. And there are even hints of a new covenant, hints of a new heart, hints of a new relationship. We, of course, recognize that as what is given to us in Jesus Christ. And so when we speak of hope as we go through the minor prophets, we will always be looking to Jesus. So what do we expect then to be the impact as we go through these books together over the next three months? And there's five questions that I believe the Lord will answer. Where do I turn when everything's falling apart? The people and the leaders were constantly tempted to turn to political and military solutions for their problems. Perhaps the nations around them would rescue them. Perhaps they could figure out some way to reestablish their own power and rule. Where do I turn when everything's falling apart and the constant call and message is return, return to the Lord? What does God love and hate and how does that relate to us, his people? We'll read about both of those things, the things that the Lord despises that he sees in the failure of this very privileged people, their idolatry and infidelity and unfaithfulness. But what does idolatry and infidelity and unfaithfulness look like in our day? What does the Lord hate? What does the Lord love? What does he long for? How does he call us to live in dark times? How does all of us relate to us as his people? When I have lost, when God's people have lost power and position, in other words, when kingdom is taken away, when I no longer look at the world around me and see the trappings of faith, but instead see the idolatry and the moral decay of the nations. What does true faith look like? We like to anticipate a day of the Lord, of judgment on all of this wickedness, but one of the messages of the minor prophets is the danger of presumption of God's wrath on everybody else and not on my own heart. When power and position, when kingdom have been taken away, what does true faith look like? When I'm under attack and experiencing pressure on all sides, what does God have to offer me within? Think about the situation of the people returning from exile. In utter poverty and with no military power, they were called to rebuild entire cities and called to rebuild the temple, reestablish their vineyards and their fields when they were still surrounded by enemies. 
when I am under attack with pressure on all sides, what does God want me to do? And then finally, in our cycles, in my cycle of sin and repentance and relapse, is there any hope? And of course, yes, our hope is in Jesus Christ. We're going to see Jesus in the Minor Prophets. I'd like to ask you to do something over the next three months. First of all, I'd like to ask you to read the Minor Prophets. I would suggest if you can get a hold of a New Living Translation that you do at least one read through the New Living Translation. They've done a good job of helping to put these words in terms that are understandable in our language. Uh, so let me suggest reading the Minor Prophets and take at least one stab at the New Living Translation. Pray. We are undertaking a challenge here, but all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is useful for doctrine, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the people of God can be equipped for every good work. Would you please pray that God would use these scriptures for equipping us, his people, to live for and to serve him. And then let's be ready to learn. Not necessarily to pay so much attention to learning about ancient dates and borders and kingdoms, but to learn about God, who he is, what he loves, what he hates, what he wants us to do and to learn about ourselves. What does it mean to be the people of God in very challenging days? This is what we are going to ask the Lord to lead us through in these coming months. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word and for every word of it. Sometimes we don't understand. Sometimes it's really hard to read some of those difficult passages but you have given it as a precious gift. We could be without your word. You could have chosen to withdraw yourself from a fallen sinful world and exist for eternity evermore in the perfect love and unity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and leave us to condemnation and death. But you revealed yourself. You revealed yourself through the prophets and the apostles. You revealed yourself through a son about whom we read in every page of your precious word. And so we ask you, Father, to continue to do what you have done from the day that you brought redemption in our hearts, and that is to sanctify us by your truth and the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can be more and more like Jesus and the beauty of his character for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.